Go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 2. Um, I want to take about 20 to 30 minutes, 25 minutes, ideally. Um, I just talked to you about God's design in marriage and why it requires courage and why your sex life depends on it. Um, if you are not married, uh, this is serves two purposes. One, set appropriate expectations for marriage and what you should be looking for. Um, and two, uh, to aim at uh, uh, becoming the kind of man um, that can stand faithfully in your marriage. If you are married, um, it is a word of caution um, and a word of encouragement. I uh, um, have watched over the last 15 years, marriage after marriage after marriage, fall prey to a, a pretty radical misunderstanding of the nature of courage and courage in your marriage um, that has resulted in neutered men and neutered marriages. Uh, in fact, I would not just argue, I would, uh, I would say most of the families that have left churches that I've been a part of leading um, over the years have not happened because uh, the man fell under conviction around some theological issue or some trajectory or direction they wanted to take their family, but rather because the wife was uncomfortable with tone, with language, with the amount of courage required um, to worship with a particular church. Um, and that then resulted in um, certain aspects and, uh, and failures in that marriage um, that I've kind of watched unfold over time. Um, and, uh, and so I, I want to hold up to you God's design in marriage. Um, and here's, I'm going to start with the principle um, and then we'll, uh, we'll take the text, look at it, and talk about it, try to spell it out. And the principle is this. Um, by God's design, marriage will have this conflict always at the heart of it. And that conflict, that natural disposition that's given to us by God's design, requires courage on the part of the man. So there's a couple things in there. One... By design, your marriage will have conflict in it. This isn't because of sin. Sin adds a whole other layer of conflict to marriage. Just by design, there is a natural orientation that the man is called by God to have. And a natural orientation that the wife is called to have that are in conflict. By design. Not a flaw. It's perfect. Good. And that, that conflict at the heart of God's design of marriage requires you to win. <laughs> requires you to have courage. Requires you to not be afraid of your wife. Which may cost you in the short term things that you want. And let me just be Explicit and honest recording. That likely means sex. Um, one of my side trails, I think this could be a PhD topic, if I ever wanted to do a PhD topic, um, is that sex lay at the root of almost every male compromise under the sun. Um, but that's not the main point I want to talk about tonight. Main point I'm talking about tonight 
the next 22 minutes is that there is conflict built into God's design of your marriage or your future marriage or your hope for marriage. If you're looking for a marriage that avoids this conflict, that's not good. Two, it is absolutely essential that you win this conflict. For the health of your wife, for the good of your children, ultimately for the good of your marriage. And that conflict, add a qualifier, will play out differently in every marriage. Absolutely differently in every marriage. Some marriages, it will be a long, dogged, dragged out, painful battle. Some of you, it will not be a long, dragged out, dogged battle. You'll find a wife who happily and cheerfully loses the battle quickly. And whichever one it is, and whichever one in between those it is, designed perfectly by God for your sanctification and good. Okay? Um, I want to um, tell a story that might be mildly embarrassing to my son, but he was five when it happened. And he's far outgrown this. And he is now a strong, courageous, battle-tested man. Mildly battle-tested. Um, but it illustrates what I'm trying to make. And the point is not really about Hayes. It's about uh, Jenny and I and, and this fundamental difference between men and women. Um, Hayes was, I think, five. Or Hayes and Molly were about five. Uh, so this was about 13 years ago. Um, and we decided to go hiking in March at Mount Falcon. Um, and it was very, very cold. Extremely cold. Um, our son, before leaving made the wise decision of the five-year-old to wear shorts on this hike. Um, fought to wear shorts, and for whatever reason, at that point in our life as parents, we decided that if he wanted to wear shorts, he could wear shorts, but he's going to wear shorts. Um, and we're not going to wrap him up, him. he's going to wear shorts. Um, I decided early on um, that Hayes was going to walk the entirety of this Relatively short hike. I don't even know. Somebody probably knows how far that hike is in Mount Falcon, but it's probably not more than a mile, mile and a half uh, up and back. And, uh, and so we began hiking. Hayes began whimpering. He was very cold. His legs were very cold. He was very tired. And he wanted to sit. And when he wanted to sit, he wanted to cry while he sat. Um, and... Um, Jenny's inclination over the course of the next three-hour battle that ensued um, with what appear, on appearances with a battle with our son. Um, in reality, it was a bit battle between a husband and a wife, and it perfectly epitomized the battle I want to spell out for you right now, um, was, why don't you just carry him? This will go much faster if you'll just carry him. My inclination on the other side is, I will cut off my leg before I touch that child and pick him up. <laughs> he's going to walk the entirety of this hike, and he's going to stop sitting on the logs and crying. <laughs> and that battle, um, which on all appearances looked like it was a battle with him, to get him to walk uh, to see this beautiful burned-out house, 
uh, mansion, whatever it is, um, walk around in the mountains and then walk back to the car. Um, it looked like it was a battle with him, but the most important battle that took place on the side of Mount Falcon that day was between my wife's good inclination to be a mom, to do things that moms should be oriented towards, the battle between a father who's called by God to raise a son who would hopefully learn not to wear shorts when it was 34 degrees outside and would be willing to walk a mile and a half. What's up? It didn't work. He's still wearing shorts and it's cold. Um, there is hardwired into your marriage an orientation in your wife. It should be there. And, and, and this, is, um, this will be expressed in really different ways. Um, so I'm, I'm going to use words to, to, to paint a picture. But that you shouldn't take that picture and say, this is what it looks like with my wife. My wife's nothing like that. I promise you the imp- the impetus at the heart of what I'm about to describe is in your wife. It may play out differently, it may look slightly differently, but, but it, it, it is a fundamental orientation towards safety, towards comfort, towards protection, towards security, towards emotional well-being. And as I say all of that, I want to 100% affirm it as good and absolutely rotten if it's in you. <laughs> That's how God has designed a wife and a mom. On the other side, is an orientation to adventure, to risk, to fighting, to courage. To war, to put it all on the line. And those two things, if you just hear the description, they're in conflict, right? And they are there by God's design. And it's absolutely essential that you learn how to receive the good gift, the ways that God has wired those kinds of things into your wife or future wife, while not compromising the least on what God has actually called you to in the way that you lead your family, in the way you lead your life. And there's two temptations in this. We're going to get to the Bible in just a second, I promise. There's two temptations in this. One, as a man, to be an ass. Every man has in them the ability to be a complete an utter ass. That is, treat your wife's inclinations, good, God-given inclinations, as stupid, as weak, as merely a hindrance on what God has called you to. And so you become a turd. Okay? You're looking for a wife, you see these inclinations in a woman, you think, I would never wear a woman like that. Okay? That's one inclination. Second inclination, inclination, far more prominent in our current cultural mood and society, is to assume this is what virtue looks like. Virtue is soft, 
It's empathetic. It doesn't risk. It avoids fights at all costs. And therefore to cave, neuter yourself, almost said a far more very very term for that. Neuter yourself and just cave. And about 18 months into marriage, almost all men think that's the right move. Why? Because they want to keep having sex with their wife. And what I want to call you to is a kind of courage that happily and joyfully receives the good gift of God that he's given you, the orientations and the gifts of your wife, and still obeys God, pursuing the kind of courage that Chase talked about for the first 45 minutes. That's the ideal. And step one in the ideal is recognizing that that conflict is normal and good and necessary, and you better win. Got it? Okay. Genesis 2. Um, will someone read verses 15 to 25 with vigor, loudness, and correct pronunciation? And don't read some sort of New Living Translation or something weird. Uh, Genesis 2, 15 to 25. I got it. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall, she, she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Amen. All right, so undergirding this passage is what takes place in Genesis chapter 1 and the commission given to the man in verse 28. God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So here's the situation. Uh, man and woman are created by God. They're given a commission. That commission is multiply, Fill the earth, subdue the earth. In other words, fill the earth with culture, with beauty, with goodness, with worship. Every square inch of it. Crazy. 
almost as crazy as Matthew 28. Takes 11 disciples, cowards, tells them, don't worry, cowards, I'm going to fill you with my spirit. By the way, if you want to remember the courage that Chase talks about, talked about in the first half of this, comes from over and over again in the scriptures, comes from the coming, the presence of the spirit of God. Assurance that God is with me. It happens over and over again in the Old Testament. Sometimes somebody goes to battle and wins because God shows up and God is there by his spirit filling the leader um, to go to battle. Um, and so it says, Matthew 28, go, disciple every nation. <laughs> Nobody thinks that's crazy anymore because we've turned it into making converts. It's actually way bigger than that. Take all the nations, make them Christian. It's the commission in Matthew 28. It's madness. Jesus is mad. Genesis 28, we have the first, actually first version. What happens ultimately and is fulfilled in Matthew 28, which is he takes a man and a woman. He says, now I want you to go and I want you to fill the earth with life and goodness and beauty and culture and worship. Every inch of it. All of it. Fill it with image bearers of me. Genesis 2, as you come out of Genesis 1, is taking Genesis 1, drilling down into it, pulling it apart, unless you're looking more closely at how is that commission then going to be fulfilled by this man and this woman. And what you have in Genesis 2 is a man given this commission, this commission, and he's placed in a garden fruitful place, a place cultivated by God, and he says, I want you to be mul multiply, fill it, and subdue, this is work, everything. Then, woman's not there yet, God presents him with every animal, Adam gets to name it, it's one of my favorite things to imagine sometimes from the Bible, hippopotamus, where did that come from? Orangutan. Adam just got stuck on the O's at that point. Names all the animals. There's this curious phrase, and there's not found among any of the animals anyone who is fit for him. Quick clue, that is a sexual term. So he looks at all the animals. He's been given this crazy commission by God, placed in the garden, and said, You now multiply. Fill the earth with truth, beauty, goodness, culture, worship. And he looks at all the animals and said, I can't multiply with any of these things. <laughs> Very good that he recognized that. He's looking down south. So God then makes a woman who is fit for him, which is to say there is an aspect of our design from the very, very beginning there in Genesis 1 and 2, in which there is to be, and this is echoed and repeated emphatically in the rest of the scriptures, including the New Testament, a fundamental orientation of the woman towards that multipli multiplicity, towards that family, towards that home, towards the production of children and the raising of children and the nurturing of children. 
And there is fundamentally an orientation to the man to go out and conquer, to domesticate a wild world, to put down evil, to conquer, to exercise dominion, to, to bring a wild, unfruitful world into submission to what God has called them to. In other words, there's an orientation to femaleness and maleness. This is about without creating any sort of extra-biblical rules right now. Right now I'm just talking about a fundamental orientation that is good. And one is oriented towards the nurture and multiplication of the family. And one is oriented towards dominion, towards conquering, and towards expansion. And there's no sin yet. And those two orientations are in conflict. You see that? It's really important to me that you see that. I think it's actually really important to your marriage that you see that. Is the wife in sin because of how she was made to be fit as a partner? This isn't just mere physical sexuality. This is complete orientation of the person, which includes sexuality, as a, as a fit partner to the male, to the man. Is there any sin yet? No. Is there any sin in the man's call and orientation towards dominion and conquering? Cultivating. No. But there's conflict. So, what you should expect at the very foundation of what marriage is, apart from sin, and the wonderful thing about sin is it complicates this in mind-boggling ways is that there is an impulse that requires of you courage for risk, for dominion, for conquering, for building businesses, for living in a place that's risky, for investing money in places that are risky, for taking new jobs, for expanding your management responsibilities, going to churches that might be risky. There's an impulse in that that is fundamental to, to expressing what it means to be a man. And that will be tested by design by your wife. Not because of her sin. Now she can test it in ways that are sinful. But it will be tested and tempered by design, by a wife who should be oriented more towards safety, security, and making sure all your kids make it to 18 alive. You got it? And in that battle, it's vitally important that you receive 
that orientation is a gift, and still go conquer. That you receive that orientation as a kindness from God, as a, as a, as a person fitted well for you and for your children. And at the same time, still press into places of risk, into places of discomfort, into places that might cost you your job, might result in you not being extremely wealthy and secure, and push for victory and dominion and conquering in all the places that God's called you to do so. Now that plays itself out in a number of different ways in our culture. Um, I've seen it in, I've seen it play out, I'll I'll say in my own marriage, and then I'll I'll talk through the church, and then we'll be done. Um, So in my own marriage, um, I knew I wanted to start churches. And I don't know if you know this, there's not a lot of security in starting churches. Um, starting businesses, there's not much more security in starting churches. I think stats nationwide are roughly 80% of church plans fail. Um, I think in Denver, it's closer to 90% of churches fail. Um, and so my wife and I, prior to getting married, um, we sat on the floor of the apartment in an apartment complex that we found out a year later was uh, jokingly called Crime Cliff. It's actually called West Cliff, but um, all the locals called it Crime Cliff. Um, didn't know that. Wouldn't have necessarily, I would have probably oriented towards a different apartment complex had I known that. We sat down on the floor of the apartment, and I, I remember we were about three months from getting married, and I grabbed Jenny by the face. Grab you by the face. Grab <laughs> her by the face. And I said, here's what I know God has called me to do. We're going to plant churches. We're going to follow God wherever he leads. We're going to do whatever he asks us to do. And that will likely mean that for the rest of our life we're poor. We don't have a ton of money in savings. We're not going to have a big giant house. We're not going to be able to live wherever we want to live. We're not going to have all that stuff. But we're going to follow God wherever he leads. And that will be our security and that will be our joy. And inside of that calling, I want to do the best I can to provide for our family. Best I can to have a home for our family. Best I can to do all of those things. But this is what I'm called to do and I'm not willing to negotiate. Like, this is what I'm doing. And then ended that conversation, again, three months before our wedding day, and said, if you want out, now's the time. Um, my wife is way more even-keeled than I am. I tend to be very dramatic. And I said it really dramatically. Like, hey, if you went out, I love you. And now you should tell me. Because we're not changing that plan. Like, that's what we're doing. Um, and so set the agenda before we got married. We got married. And there has been this constant negotiation. The negotiation has never been about are we going to risk? Are we going to plan? I'm just the plant Trinity. There was never a debate over can't we just go get a job and find something secure? 
It was a knowledge of, now like, this is what my husband is made to do. This is what we as a family are designed to do. Therefore, if we have to risk it all again for the third time, we have to empty the savings account again for the third time to start a church and to start a risky maneuver and to do the thing that God's called us to do, we're going to do it. And the negotiation has all been about, okay, how do we do that and create a safe home? How do we do that and provide for the education of our kids? How do we do that and, Brian, not eat things that will kill him forever? How do we do that and provide a home that's warm? So, so that's been where the negotiation has been. The overall calling, the overall hey, we're taking this hill, this is what we're giving our lives to, this is what we're willing to die for, has never changed. There are places that you're called to be as a family, you're called to lead as a husband, that are uncomfortable. They are risky. There are things that you're called to say, stands you're called to take, um, whether that's in your neighborhood, or whether that's in a vocational choice, or whether that's when, with your kid on the side of Mount Falcon in his shorts and it's 34 degrees. Whatever the thing is, there's all kinds of places where God has wired you in, in, in such a way that you are supposed to risk. You are supposed to move forward. You're supposed to take the hill. You're supposed to put everything on the line again. That you're supposed to call and move your family into a place of discomfort. And there will be in those places a natural bent towards conflict in your wife in which you must learn to still lead faithfully in that place and in that direction and treat your wife, as Paul says, as a weaker vessel. Weaker doesn't mean like you're both pieces of wood, she's particle board, and you are oak. It's not what the language of that text indicates. The language that text indicates is that your wife is a completely different kind of being. Who has different strengths, different value. And you must learn to lead and charge the hill that you're called to charge as a family and as a man. And do so in such a way that you bring your wife along, protected from bearing the brunt of the pain that will come by charging that hill, being in that church, choosing that career, taking that stand, making that statement, whatever the thing may be, wherever that courageous moment is, is needing to be taken. Does that make sense? There is a tendency among men to want to do something risky, challenging, hard, and then to buy into the egalitarian lie Therefore, we as a family should carry this thing evenly, bear the brunt of this evenly and equally. No. You should carry as much of it as you possibly can. Whatever the hard thing is, whatever the hard conversation is, whatever the conflict with family member is, Whatever the conflict with friends is, whatever the discomfort with your children is, whatever the discomfort professionally is, whatever the dis discomfort is or the um, lack of convenience is economically or the lack of stability economically is, you should bear as much of the brunt of that as you possibly can and keep as much of it from your wife as you possibly can. 
and still do it. Because what tends to happen in marriages is it, it is because you're saying, hey, we're in this together, we're doing this together, we're going to carry this together, we're going to have conflict together, we're going to do this hard thing together, we're going to risk together. You think, I'm going to bear some of it, she's going to bear some of it, and our budget, it's going to cut my spending, my, um, uh, my kind of loose, happy spending in half, and it'll cut hers in half. No, cut yours by all of it, and don't cut hers at all. If there's conflict at work, if there's conflict relationally, if there's conflict in your marriage, you be the one that pursues working out that conflict, not pushing your wife into the middle of it. She's better with people. She's more empathetic and nice. You bear the pain. All that means, all any of this means is you move forward and you bear the pain. As much as ever you possibly can. Knowing that as you push forward into risk, into dominion, into conflict, into the things that God's called you to do, either professionally, relationally, church-wise, whatever the thing is, as you do so, it's going, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt everybody involved in it. It's going to be pain. There's going to be risk. There's going to be um, loss. You be the one that bears the brunt of it. But make sure you're pushing forward and still bearing the brunt of it. There's conflict built in your marriage. It's essential that you win or you will lose your manhood. You will absolutely lose it. And it's absolutely essential that your wife not be crushed by it, that you bear the burden of it. If you're single, you want a wife who will exemplify this conflict. But one who loves God and trusts God enough that she's willing to submit to you as you pursue the thing, the career, the investment, the church life, church membership, the role, the responsibility that God's called you to. Both of those things are what you need and they're key to your sex life. That's how I tied sex into it. Um, so, all of that being said, your temptation is to be an ass or to be a coward. Um, some of you in this room, your, t- your temptation is to be a turd. Your temptation is to bulldoze your wife. Your temptation is, if you're single, to look for a wife that you either can bulldoze or appears as tough as you are. Um, but I think the vast majority of men in our culture, and perhaps the men in this room, the far greater temptation is to soften what you're called to. To not pursue vitality and courage and enthusiasm, the thing that you've, called, you've been called to, because your wife is second-guessing it. Your wife is pulling you back. Your wife is saying, don't pursue that. Um, your wife is getting upset. And, and the problem there is, is potentially twofold. One, you're asking her to carry too much of the thing that you're called to carry. Or two, um, you're just being a coward. You're just not saying, no, this is where we need to go. This is how we're going to get there. Here's how we're going to get there in a way that actually keeps us fulfilling God's call to multiply and nurture the life of the family. Well, I think God's called us to. All right. So don't be a coward and don't be a turd. All right. Yes, sir. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah. What does helping look like ideally? And more importantly, from our perspective, how do we support our wives in helping? Yeah, that's, that's a fantastic question. So in the, in the immediate context of the text, um, the helping has primarily to do with Adam can't make babies and can't build a family on his own. So he needs somebody. He needs somebody to come alongside him and help him do that. And the woman is perfectly fitted to do that. Um, and so uh, there's, there's extensions of that. You get into things like Proverbs 31, and you realize this doesn't just mean kind of a 1950s homemaker model of, of wifing. Um, you, you start to see, no, this is actually taking um, the way my wife loves to describe it. She describes it two different metaphors. I think she stole from somebody else. Um, but is uh, she's the flag maker. Um, and so I, I go out and provide the goods, and then she comes and makes it beautiful and good and warm and hospitable and nurturing and whatever it is. So I earn a paycheck. I do my job. I establish ground. I start to see that ground produce fruit. I bring the fruit home and my wife cooks it. My wife warms it. My wife turns it into a home um, that is welcoming, that's hospitable, that actually um, multiplies the work that we're trying to do together as a family. Um, even multiplies the kind of work I'm trying to do as a pastor or a church planter. Um, and, uh, and that's, I don't remember the exact wording of the second metaphor she likes to use, but it's essentially like, hey, I'm, I'm going out and providing the oil that then, she, that then is, she's turning into fuel. That then she's seeing transformed into um, the kind of life we want to see flourishing in our home. And, uh, and in all of that, my wife um, has said to me, the thing that she needs most from me is clarity of vision. Here's what we're doing and why. Um, and two, and here's how much you can spend. <laughs> here's... Here, here's, here's the budget. Here's the umbrella. Here, here's the, uh, uh, and budget's really just one item in that, but here's the, um, the kind of home, um, the kind of parenting, the kind of children, the kind of education, the kind of hospitality that we want to be able to offer and welcome people into, um, the kind of life we want to welcome them into. And then, uh, and then from there, that turns into her discipling women, that her, turns into her um, taking the resources I brought home and, and turning them into beautiful and good and warm things, um, investing those things, selling those things, producing those things. Um, but what my wife hates for me is not intricate descriptions of exactly what I expect her to be doing. What she needs for me is a, clear, a consistent and clear and courageous vision of here's what we're trying to do. Um, and then uh, enough freedom financially, enough freedom with her time, enough freedom to actually run after those things um, passionately and obediently to Jesus. Clarity of resources. Yeah. yeah. I think so. Yes, sir. Can you say a little bit more about what you mean by um, we always need to win in that? Because I know, I, know, I know you're not thinking that as like a competition kind of win. Yeah. Because I, like, I know that there's a certain kind of um, healthy counselor kind of. Mm -hmm. uh, Yes. And she does that. Mm -hmm. but how do we know, and how does winning play into Yeah. Um, I, I think most of the time it's not a winning, like, win a competition sort of thing. 
And yet at times it is. <laughs> at times it is, hey, these are, these are two competing, um, and let's, I, I, I just, I think of one situation I was just counseling in the middle of, and it was essentially a situation where the husband felt called to lead the family in the place of what would have been just emotionally uncomfortable for the family. Um, it had to do with, uh, didn't really have to do with finances, didn't really have to do with job, had to do with uh, certain stands they were needing to take, certain people they were needing to associate with. Um, and it wasn't that the wife disagreed with anything. It wasn't like a fundamental disagreement over theology or over beliefs or over whether those things are right or wrong. It had primarily to do with how will this cause us discomfort with these relationships over here? And it was an all or nothing. It, she, she ramped it up into an all or nothing sort of battle. Like... Um, uh, th this is wrong, it's more like, I mean, turn it into an issue of love, turn it into an issue, issue of ethics. And, and I think um, for the husband, it was absolutely essential that he listened to his wife, not like Adam, but hear his wife, hear what of his wife's concerns were grounded and rooted in what is true and biblical and right, and, what of his con and also taking into account his wife's, what of his wife's concerns were merely coming out of fear, coming out of the, dis the fear of the discomfort, fear of the alienated relationships, fear of um, losing certain preferences, losing those kinds of things. And the husband needing in the midst of that to win, not by domineering his wife, that's where I want to deal with in the competition language, but win by, hey, I I'll go have those conversations. I'll, I'll be going to pursue reconciliation where it needs to be, reconciliation be pursued. And we're not moving. Like we're going to keep going this direction. Does that make sense? So it's not a win, I'm going to dominate you. I'm going to win, like, shut up, woman, I'm the husband. Let me quote to you Ephesians 5.2. Um, it, it is a I love you, let me find ways to um, not make this weight crush you. But if it crushes anybody, let it crush me. Um, and move forward. Um, does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, question. So, you know, whenever we go home, we start applying this kind of teaching, and we, you know, go to the men and be the best that we can, and our life is, you know, like, been heavily influenced by feminism, like, all of us, so to speak, and more is being to her, and then she starts saying, you know, like, you know, you know, I think, you know, it's one thing to hear sex, but put it on here, and you have to, like, just take that face. Yeah. So I want to start with, um, I want to start with examining yourself and make sure you're leading in a godly and gentle and gracious way. The key word there is leading, like you're actually still leading, like you're actually still wanting to go in a clear direction as a family. But I would start with myself and be like, hey, I want to make sure, is there something I need to confess here? Is there a, is there a mess that I've made here? Um, other, the, other, the second thing on that is sometimes men have been passive for the last five years of their marriage and then suddenly decide to get conviction and get clarity on like how I want to lead my family. Um, they go from like a zero to a ten in one afternoon. Um, and uh, that can create all kinds of its own messes. Like you, you, you first have to go and confess your apathy, confess your <coughs> failure to lead God in a godly way. And then you start to lead in really small ways, and then that then earns the trust to start leading in big ways. 
Um, so be a second step, both of which start with you. Um, one, like, am I am I doing this wrong? Like, am I doing this in a way that's like actually oppressive, abusive, walking all over my wife? Um, and then two, have I, do I is there sins I need to go back and confess over the last five years, ten years, twenty years, whatever? Um, in terms of apathy, in terms of failure to lead, in terms of failure to maybe to, to bear the brunt of burdens that um, I've made her bear. Um, and then the third piece is to go like, hey, how, how if you're meeting resistance, what I often find is sometimes it's feminism. Sometimes if it's a Christian wife, uh, she's afraid that the decision you're making is going to result in her being the one that bears a lot of your um, I think men, the, 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 the fundamental temptation of men in marriage and husbands is apathy. It's abdicating your responsibility. Um, I think this is one of the reasons why um, in Ephesians 5, Paul commends wives to honor their husbands. That's not about you feeling like getting your self-esteem built up. Um, honor has primarily to do with, about, with naming and acknowledging one's responsibility, one's position. Um, I think that the, the answer to men's apathy is women who place responsibility for leading the home on the husband. That's honor, I think, in the, in the language of Ephesians 5. Um, and so I think, like, uh, when you've, you've been apathetic or, or abdicated your responsibility to lead for a long period of time, and suddenly you want to leave, um, there's a really good chance that over the last five years, the only time you got fired up about stuff was when you wanted to buy something. Um, when you wanted to get what you wanted. And suddenly Ephesians 5 mattered a lot to you. Um, you wanted to get the new smoker uh, or the new truck. Um, and, uh, and, and so there's going to be a need to see that, like, no, my leadership here is not about um, satisfying my own desires. It's actually about fulfilling those calls in our life. And you actually need to demonstrate that for her. Um, and uh, again, that, that doesn't mean feminism never comes into play. But I often find that most theological ideas that suddenly present themselves um, are, uh, are mostly rooted in something else. Does that make sense? Like, it's not that your wife became philosophically conf- you know, convinced of the truth of feminism. It's that she experienced a pattern of life for 10 years or five years and then came up with a theology to justify why she didn't have to live that way anymore. Um, so I-, I would say figure out if there's anything in there that's yours. Own it, repent of it, and move slowly towards transformation. Um, and then go see your own. Yeah, um, I think Toby was here about a year ago, maybe. Um, he said a really good thing. I, I, I think servant leadership is true. And it's been so maligned and twisted by kind of egalitarian sensibilities and feminine sensibilities in our culture. But what it's come to mean is servant leadership means doing whatever your wife wants. Um, and uh, and, and um, servant leaders 
serve by leading. How do you lead? You bear responsibility. How do you lead? You set clear biblical vision. How do you lead? You bear more pain than those that you're leading. Um, and, uh, and we have, within kind of our evangelical subculture, um, maybe supremely in Denver, um, uh, and maybe secondarily in Boulder, uh, have, have um, accepted kind of the cultural narrative that uh, servanthood means doing whatever it is that someone else wants or what someone else is comfortable with or what, whatever makes someone else feel good. Um, and that's neither leadership, servanthood, or love. Um, servant leadership, whether that's in the family or in your company um, or in your home or in the church, um, for, in the first place means leading. And the servanthood part of it, I, would, I think, means not leading in such a way that no one, someone else is actually leading. It means leading in such a way that you're bearing the brunt of pain. Um, you're bearing the brunt of whatever the burden is that needs to get carried. You're the one that's making the financial sacrifices. Um, you're the one that's letting your underlings get a raise, and maybe you're, you're, you're having to forgo a raise. It means um, if hospitality is a vital, is, is a big value in our home, and it's something, I'll just, this is my personal confession, really value hospitality, want to have people in our home all the time, and for a large part of our marriage, thought that meant that my wife spent a lot of time getting the house ready and then cleaning up after we had a whole bunch of people in our house, <laughs> which is asinine. Um, what it actually means is I'm right there with her. Um, I'm, if we're going to have 40 people in our house, we're feeding them all dinner. I'm, I'm right there beside her helping make dinner and helping clean up the dishes. That's servant leadership. Cast a vision. We want to do hospitality. We don't, have, we don't have 40 people in our home multiple times a month. And... For us to do that, that's gonna, that means there's a heavier burden on cooking, a heavier, bur- heavier burden on cleaning up the house, a heavier burden on cleaning up after those people come over. I'm going to be right there with you. In fact, I'm going to go out of my way to make sure most of that burden falls on me, not on you. Um, doesn't mean does, burden doesn't fall on her. It just means um, I'm going to carry as much of that burden as I can. But notice that underneath it is leading, it's still leading. Still setting direction, still saying here's what we're going to do and how and, and what, how we're going to go about doing it. Um, and, and I think there is a, a model of servant leadership that's prevalent, particularly when pastors who are ostensibly complementarian or you know, ostensibly believe in, say, the Ephesians five pattern of marriage. Um, a really great way to preach that way that's unoffensive to our culture. To say, but the leadership that that the Bible is calling for from husbands here is servant leadership, and then you get to the end of the sermon and realize what they just actually taught and said is that wives should lead their husbands, lead their husbands and do whatever they want, and husbands should make sure their wives can do that. Thank you. Um, so that's that's I don't know if that's what you're trying to hit at, um, but that's how to answer that question.